This is an ABC podcast. Hi, this is the Belief Series and this is our final one for this series. A a special bonus final one which comes after the actual final one with Jana Pittman. Having done a baker's dozen of these now, I'm starting to see the connections. And this one, you'll hear echoes of things Richard Feidler said and Janet Albrechtson said. Some obvious connections with William Barton and perhaps less apparent with George Miller. But on its own, this is a deeply fascinating conversation. Stan Grant, journalist, broadcaster, author, Wiradjuri man, doctor of theology. Well, nearly. He's just handed in his thesis and expects it to be conferred sometime soon. Of all you know and have heard about Stan, that last credit is probably the least well-known. But as emerges through this conversation, Stan has a deeply held, passionate and personal relationship with God. And at times, it was like sitting with an inspired preacher man who could bring the spirit to the stones. This conversation was recorded on the Thursday after the October the 14th referendum on The Voice to Parliament. Australia had said no to constitutional recognition in the form of a voice for the First Nations people, so of course Stan was reflective on that. That's why we delayed this talk as well. It didn't make much sense to talk about Stan's beliefs until that matter had been settled. We began with that, but we were very soon beyond this party did that or that party should have done the other level. Let's pick it up where Stan was critiquing the Yes campaign. It failed as a political strategy. It thought it could, it could make a political argument to shrink it to nothing and that people would be so, it would be so inoffensive that people would find no reason to say no. It was so inoffensive that people found no reason to say yes. But a few sentences on, Stan is putting the referendum result in a deep, global and historical context. I think history puts an unbearable weight on democracies. They just can't deal with it. America can't deal with the weight of slavery and genocide. Australia can't deal with the weight of our, of our history. I was just in Germany recently and uh, in Bonn and there with a, a, a Danish friend of mine and we were talking and inevitably when you're in Germany, inevitably, you know, the Holocaust just hangs in the air. And the moment that he spoke about the Holocaust, his voice dropped to a whisper because there are some things that you should not speak aloud. And I think democracy just struggles to find the language for these things that we do to each other. And democracy is always about tomorrow. It's, it's, it has no memory and it doesn't like memory. Mm-hmm. At the, it, and I think all around the world right now, the fault lines of democracy uh, run across history, identity, race, class, these things that democracy just can't hold. Mm. And the volume of noise, the plethora of voices, the incessant demand and everybody demanding a right that a democracy cannot possibly mm. meet. Mm. But so are you, you're expressing a belief there that democracy is failing and democracy, liberal mm. democracy was the term you used, can't deal with these. Definitely. It's not that the world, social media, media... Uh, capitalism, you yeah. know, political classes have put too much, have failed democracy as such. I think they're all part of it. They're all part of that failure. The media gives us just enough time to say nothing. Time's up. Thank you for that, Minister. It's your turn, then it's your turn, then it's your turn. We've become so used to running down the clock. 
I was watching the coverage on the night and I declined all requests to go on because I don't think it was a time to speak. I think there is time for silence and watching that on the night and seeing the complexity of our lives, 200 years of this history, 300 years of post-enlightenment liberalism, thousands of years of of human complexity, of theology and history and philosophy and politics and reduced to a TV hot take. Who can say the pithiest thing and the inanity that came out of their mouths? You know, these ridiculous words, reconciliation and healing, that are like applying the aspirin to a wound, uh-huh. best applied within 24 hours. <laughs> you yeah. know? I mean, seriously. And I was watching that and thinking, this is not up to the moment. So democracy, you know, the media can't can't serve the weight of of this moment, can't hold the weight of this moment. Capitalism, we know where this has ended up and globalisation with winners and losers. We look at America where 1% of the population has 900 times the wealth of the bottom 50% of the population where your postcode, your zip code is your life expectancy, where to not have a college degree means you die younger. You look at Europe that can't deal with the claims that are put on its democracy, the different voices. What does it mean to be French when the ideas of la cité, égalité and fraternité just can't hold anymore? when someone wants to put a hijab on in the street in a country that says we should be free from religion, not free to express religion. Yeah, yeah. These things are too hard for our democracies. And so we retreat into this, um, this sort of Netherland, this, this, this faux neutrality. It's no wonder Stan decided that the media was perhaps not his best platform anymore. There's too much there for the soundbite, and how much do I love that expression, we are given just enough time to say nothing. That's going to hang with me. So where does the voice referendum sit in all this? It's part of it. And I wrote an article which is so prescient now, and I wrote it in about 2018 or 19 uh, for the conversation. Um, uh, and, And I talked about this. I talked about the blindfolds of our liberalism, that the attachment to individuality, the rights of individuals, historical neutrality, the idea that in Australia it's a place to escape history. We're a nation with no memory. We think historical introspection is an indulgence. We just shy away from it. And who can blame them when people have fled war, revolution, um, fled Southern Europe after World War II, Vietnam after the Vietnam War, the Middle East. Mm. They come here and it's a place to go to the beach. Mm. And here we are with a history that bears down on us that we cannot escape, that suffocates us, speaking to a country with no memory. Mm. And so these things are very, very hard for democracy, and especially when liberalism can be so anaesthetising that if you're doing okay... It doesn't ask you any hard questions. Uh, But if you're struggling to get out from underneath it, it chokes you. Uh, Explain what you mean by liberalism. What are you describing there? Well, I'm talking about the small L liberalism. uh, These ideas that emerged out of 
the Enlightenment, the 17th, 18th century that gave birth to the modern world. The idea that, um, and there are different forms of it, but broadly an idea that the Enlightenment posited that the individual is sovereign. We are free now from the bonds of the past. It emerged after the Reformation and the wars of religion that savaged Europe. It, it said we don't bow down to, um, to monarchy, to privilege, to the church. We're free, as, as Immanuel Kant said, dare to know mm. that reason is king. And this leads us inevitably to a place that on the one hand is incredibly liberating. A necessary release at that point. Yes, a necessary release and liberating. I mean, it has, it has enshrined ideas of freedom of speech, freedom of expression. We live in a world of the free movement of people. Um, liberal democracies have broadly been peaceful. Um, and yet it also, what, what also lurks in that enlightenment ideal of rationality and reason is Auschwitz and the Gulag, um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You know, these, these, this is also where reason and rationality leads us, the dark heart of reason and rationality. And, and I think and probably colonialism as well. Co definitely we, colonialism. You know, we, have a, we are so enlightened that we have a yes. right to this land. Yes, and yeah. we'll come and we'll civilise you. Mm. And, and I think what we're seeing all around the world right now is that the 300-year-old experiment is, is reaching its end. Something is dying and we don't know what is yet to be born. Mm. And I see this everywhere. Mm. The wars that we see around our world right now are wars of the 20th century. We're still mopping up. We don't have answers to 21st century problems. Yeah. Um, someone, you know, I'm a, I'm a great, um, uh, have a great interest in quantum physics and you look around the world and we're still living in a Newtonian world. Mm -hmm. We're living in a world yeah. of fixed ordered states, of billiard ball states that bounce off each other and are controlled by the laws of gravity. But in fact, we live in a quantum world, mm. a quantum world where space and time disintegrates, a quantum world that is in inevitably entangled, complementary, um, just as in the quantum, quantum world a particle separated here and a particle separated there can change the nature of each other. So sovereign bordered states don't, don't speak to the complexity of the 21st century. Mm -hmm. And here we are still wrestling to squeeze 24,000 different peoples in the world with their own ethnicity, language, cultures into fewer than 200 nations mm -hmm. and democracy in retreat, 15 straight years of declining democracy, according to Freedom House. Um, we're seeing this and we don't yet know what the answers yeah. to the 21st century are going to be. And I think the voice landed right at the sweet spot of that. Liberalism that can't hold the weight of history. Liberalism that is exhausted and out of ideas. Uh, something yet struggling to be born in a world and we don't know what it is. Uncertainty. People feeling connected and yet estranged and a media that doesn't have a language for this and a politics that doesn't have a, a capacity to lead mm. through this. And mm. the voice landed right at the sweet spot of that. Again, not a context for the voice result I've heard put. But Stan hurls us quickly on into a further look at where we are right now. Was it your believing that we're at a point 
something like the Reformation or the Yeah, There's, I think we are. We're at some sort of point where, it, at the point when, you know, Martin Luther bangs the thesis yeah. up or at the point when, uh, you know, Newton publishes, you don't see the coming world. <laughs> yeah, you know, we, we're living in the fourth industrial revolution. We've already ceded intellectual supremacy to artificial intelligence. That gene is out of the bottle. Mm. In 2017, AlphaGo defeated the world Go champion. I mean, anyone who knows anything about Go, it's like a four-dimensional chest. There are more potential moves in a game of Go than there are atoms in the universe. Mm. And yet, an artificial Go champion beat a human Go yeah. champion. Yeah. We've already ceded this supremacy. Artificial intelligence doesn't necessarily mean the extinction of the human race, but as the English philosopher John Gray said, it tests and challenges our humanness. Yeah. And I think we're struggling with all of these things, technology... But just as the cotton gin did, or just as the steam exactly engine did, or the internal did. combustion engine And something did. else is we born. We all change because of that. And yeah. something else is born. And when you look at communications technology, the Gutenberg Press, which puts Bibles into the hands of people, which leads to this explosion of, of, of religious thought and, and religious conflict... The Gutenberg Press leads to the wars of religion. Mm. If you look at the, the microphone and the telegram, shrinks time and space. The microphone means that a rabble rouser from the beer halls of Munich is suddenly speaking to thousands yeah. at the Nuremberg rallies. Yeah. And those images, those talking pictures, which go out around the world yeah. and, and look at what the Nazis did in the way that it was dressed in the way that they marketed this evil. Yeah. They got contemporary media in the same way that the, the Russians get social media or something like that. And Trump gets social media. Yeah. And social media gives us identity in an, in an age of alienation. And it gives us those the people who can best speak not to how we govern for all, but how we govern over all mm. or with our difference. Mm. So, you know, these, these things inevitably change us and we're, we're going through that. And as a reporter, I've been at, I had a front row seat at this. Yeah. I've seen the world change. I've covered the wars of our time. As an Aboriginal person, I've lived through this. My family emerges out of conflict. I know what it is to be displaced. I know what it is to lose your place in the universe, to ask different questions. And I think the world now with this 300-year post-enlightenment experiment is grappling to find answers mm. to the voices that are rising everywhere to speak back to that. There was a wonderful book by Jacques Derrida, um, which was a response to Frank Fukuyama's um, uh, uh, The End of History After the Cold War. Mm. And his book was The Spectres of Marx. And he talked about the spectres of Marx. He talked about this spectre haunting Europe. And he said, what we are going to see is not a blossoming of liberal democracy. What we're going to see is the crypts of the dead reopening as people start rattling their chains. Mm. And we've seen this. Mm. We did not see a flowering of democracy. We've seen the opposite. Within, within 30 years of this explosion of democracy, mm. the end of history, as Fukuyama called it, we're now at a point where democracy itself is on tilt. Yeah. So the world is going through yeah, this change. Yeah. But, I mean, most of us believe that democracy is the best of all possible. Everything else is terrible. Well, as, as, as Churchill said, Churchill yes. Said. And, that, and it seems, you know, like the at, at first look... What, what could be better? Here's 100 people, if yeah. 60 of them say this, well, fair enough. Yeah. You 40 will just have to, have to swallow it. Mm. What's wrong with it? I think what's wrong with it is that 
you know, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this actually, James, because I think on the one hand, there's been an erosion of trust and faith in institutions. The 40 can only accept the will of the 60 if they know that the institutions keep the will of the 60 in check. And the next time around, they get to vote. You put your faith in the institutions of democracy, what's been called the soft guardrails of democracy. And we've seen the erosion of the soft guardrails of democracy. Mm. We've seen royal commissions into aged care, into the treatment of Aboriginal people, into financial systems, into um, the churches. We see a loss of faith in the judiciary, a loss of faith in the media, news avoidance at an all-time yeah. high. Yeah. So I think the, the institutions of democracy are also failing, yeah. and so the 40 can't accept the peaceful transfer from the 60. But I think there's something else, and I think, I think this is even more pertinent. I think democracy requires intimacy. And what we've lost with the technological revolution is intimacy. We have greater connectivity, but we never have to touch. Mm. I can sit at home and order food and never have to see the person who cooked it mm. or never have to see the face of the person who delivers it. Mm. We're losing a human touch. People celebrate... Um, the freedom from religion and superstition that that the uh, that that the Enlightenment you mm. know posited. Mm. We meet each other in places of worship. We meet you know we've seen an erosion of trade unions. Mm. We meet each other on the shop floor. The places where we form intimate bonds have eroded. Democracy is not what you do in a ballot box. Democracy, I think is a thousand small kind mm. acts of kindness, mm. a smile in the street, please, thank you, can I help you? These are the things that, that connect us to each other. I think there's more democracy in the stands at a football game than there is, you know, at a protest. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and I think we're losing, we're losing intimacy and we're sacrificing that to convenience and efficiency and technology. Yeah. And that's widening the gaps between us. See, I always react to that kind of uh, that characterisation as, you know, and I'd be referring to you, to your childhood. I grew up in the country town. Mm. I never would have met you. Mm. Like you would have, I would have been in the white on the white side. Yes, you would have been with the, with the black kids, the yeah. black fellows. I would I would have been actively discouraged from, yes. from any contact. And if I and I went to church, and yes. I went to church with the same class of people, all Anglican worshippers. Yes in the same place, and then we went to the Anglican school. I mean, this to me was, were the, this is a bubble, the same as any other bubble, yes. and it's not a bubble that encouraged intimacy. And I'd also say the, the manners of that you're describing as well. In my class and my upbringing, those manners were designed to keep you out. Yeah. You don't know the manners, therefore we can, we can recognise you. But I like what Leonard Cohen said. It's the cracks where the light seeps yeah. in, you know. And yes, you were going to a different church, but I was going to church too. And I was hearing the Gospels too, and we were probably interpreting them in different ways. But there was a language there. And we knew who you were because we had your blood in our veins. Mm. We've all got white ancestry mm. too. We wouldn't I meet well you. have black, but we're not admitting it. <laughs> yes, you may well have. We would meet each other on a football field and shake hands at the end of the game before we went back. Mm -hmm. There were little cracks where the light came in. I think we're losing some of, some of these cracks. We're losing a common language. Um, Jürgen Moltmann, who's a great influence on me, is a German theologian who wrote, the first theological response to Auschwitz, the first attempt to grapple with the question, where was God 
in the gas chamber. And he's a young guy, was drafted into the German army at 16. He had to wrestle with his own complicity in this too. And he said something in the wonderful book, The Crucified God, and he says, in exile, I've always thought of myself in many ways as an exile, in exile we find home, in alienation we find identity. And I think we are alienated yeah. and we live in a world of identity and no light can get in. There was some light, yeah. even in the space between yeah. us, James. And, and, and then those cracks, the light could get in. This is a thesis. He has a view of the world, which is not the headline and the angle. It's how history has got us to here. And now where the hell are we going? And let's remember that Stan left the ABC after sustained and hostile criticism of observations he made before the funeral of Queen Elizabeth. At that time, he spoke an undeniable truth that for Indigenous Australians, the royal family of England are not revered, and these kind of commemorations can be painful. But he left saying that he thinks he might be part of the problem, and he needs space to think about that. In that short phrase, you can understand he's a man who's thinking deeply about life and his place in it. I suggested that I believe that while he may be right about the disconnect that happens in an uberized, Instagrammed world, there's also enormous connecting possibility for many who were left entirely outside traditional institutions. There's a new connectivity at play. There is different connectivity. I become concerned where even in those liberating movements, they can become sealed off. And I think the celebration of identity as a liberating thing can be a wonderful thing. It can very easily then harden into something else where you stop seeing yourself in somebody else, where that community becomes all. There's you know, a phrase that I've read where it really, really sort of stuck with me. It talked about identity being like the head, staring into the head of the Medusa, mm. that it can turn you to stone. Mm. You know, even movements like Black Lives Matter as urgent, necessary as they are, can also carry within them seeds of their own tyranny. Mm-hmm. You're not black enough. Yeah. You don't belong. What are you doing with that white friend? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the white people who come into those movements sort of sublimate themselves. I think identity needs to be porous. Mm-hmm. I think liberating identities, identities that emerge out of oppression, are so important but they can also easily become something that seals us mm. off from each other. I've and yet that identity, you know, so much contemporary search for identity mm. comes from relating to civil rights movements of the yeah. 50s and 60s, feminism, um, yeah. gays, then you know, went, oh, well, what about us? And yeah. so, so now in a sense, everybody's wanting what others have already had. Yeah, and of course the greatest identity of all is the, is the, the white supremacist identity that can take countries, colonise lands, lock up people, commit genocide and pay no price mm. and then tell others, you've got no right to speak back to this. Yeah. Why don't you just get over it? You know, that's why I think for me, James, exile has always been an attractive idea. The freedom... In exile, Cheslav Milos, my favourite poet, Lithuanian, who said, perhaps I'm a Lithuanian, for whom it was never meant to be a Lithuanian, occupied by Russia, occupied by Nazis, occupied by Poland, grows up speaking Polish, not Lithuanian, writes in Polish but calls himself a Lithuanian poet. He's a poet of the borderlands. Mm -hmm. Don't trust the ground beneath your feet. Mm -hmm. 
whatever it was in my own life, my own background, it meant that I was a person who inhabited worlds and moved between worlds. I don't like it when my own people put a crushing claim of conformity on me. I don't like it when people say there is an Aboriginal way of knowing, doing and being. There are Aboriginal ways of knowing, doing and being. There are human ways of knowing, doing and being. I, I like the spaces in between. I like James Baldwin who goes to France and says, I will not be a Negro, let alone a Negro writer. Mm. Not that I don't want to be black. I'm not going to be your Negro. Yeah. I'm not going to be your black writer. James Joyce who says, you know, in, in, in Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man, I go in search of the unconstructed conscience of my race. He goes to Trieste to write. He goes to Paris to write. I leave Australia and live outside for 20 years and I like the bird's eye view of exile, the truth that comes from that and the ability to see ourselves in each other. And I celebrate the sort of liberation of people from that oppression, but I fear what comes after that, which says, now you belong here. Right. And I don't want to belong anywhere. Yeah. And you do come and go, don't you? Like you'll, I you come know, and the, go. You, you'll, you'll be at the ABC for all then. Boof. I come and go. Uh, yeah. Well, you see, James, yeah. I, I, I never had a home. My mum and dad were transient. We were the first generation off the missions. The small towns didn't want us. We had to find work wherever we could get it. I changed schools 13, 14 times before I was even into high school. Mm. I was never there. Yeah. I was never there long enough to be noticed. And I think I like that. I'm attracted to that. I like the sound of the, ca of the, the car wheels on the road. I like watching the fence posts go by. <laughs> I like to disappear into my own mind. And I, I suppose I was born into that restlessness and that's carried me everywhere and it's in my writing, it's, it's in who I am. I don't like to be claimed mm. and that's what I bristle with, with identity, mm. the claim it puts on you. And then the conversation went into an area I didn't expect and that's simply because I'd never asked. I'd been acquainted with Stan for years, seen him around, had chats, talked music, talked politics, gossiped about the ABC, but we never talked about faith and Jesus. But I'd heard something in his answers so far that prompted me to move on from global affairs to ask about his church. As a kid, I went to St John's Anglican Church, Ballarat. Where was he? I was going to the church on the, uh, on the mission where I was primarily lived. We, we moved back and forward from Griffith to a whole lot of little towns. But it was a black church, you know. It was... Um, it like was, a Catholic it was, Baptist? We're sort of non-denominational. Non um, we'd had everybody through us, you right. know. I'm, 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 I've got Catholicism because I've got Irish ancestry. Right. We had the Church of England Methodist setting up missions. Then we had an evangelical movement that swept through Aboriginal right. politics as well. But I'll tell you what it was. If I had to say, what, if anything, it was the Church of the Forsaken. It was the Church of the Crucified Christ. Right. It wasn't a Church of the Resurrection, right. James. You know, there, there are Christians in the second century who never believed in the resurrection. And you know, I've got priest friends of mine that I have this debate with all the time, and I say, it doesn't speak to me. The nails in the hands speak to me. Mm -hmm. We're the church of the dark Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. When God is dead, God is dead. Yeah. And there is no hope yeah. in the world. Yeah. And yet there is the promise of something. Yeah. And we well, held on to ask, that. So is, is God still with you? Like God's not with me. Totally. Anymore. God's still with you. 
look. The uh, Michelangelo. John Coltrane. Right. John Coltrane. You know, I, I have a relationship with God that is, since I was a child, is utterly real. It is an incarnation. Hmm. I have felt the presence of Jesus Christ in my life since I was a boy. And James, the reason I am here is improbable. Hmm. And I know that there was a divine touch. I know that something got me through that. I remember once when I was a boy and I was looking in at my uncles. We prayed hard, James. We prayed to survive. And I looked in at my uncles one day and they were kneeling around the bed in my grandmother's tiny little house. And they had their Bibles out and their heads were down and they were on their knees. And James, they prayed so hard the walls of the room shook. It scared me. I always felt this presence of Christ in my life. Always, always, always. I have what people call an esoteric experience of God where things happen. I receive what are signs of God. And people listening to this might go, he's completely lost his mind. Well, so be it. So be it. It's real to me. John Coltrane came to me, and it wasn't a dream. He came to me as like you're sitting here with me. And I woke up in the morning, and you know what he said to me? I was preparing to deliver a speech, and I want to talk about the notion of time and God and time. And I wanted to talk about how... Music was brought to heal through time. Bring it to order. Count it out. Mm. Let's, let's take this cacophony of voices and put it on notes on a staff. <laughs> let's control music. Mm. Coltrane came to me and he said, follow my music and I'll take you to the heartbeat of God. He said this to me. And I, I, I gave this lecture where I spoke about Coltrane who said, I start in the middle of a sentence and I go both ways at once. God says, I am Alpha and Omega. I am beginning and end. That's Coltrane. When Coltrane did a Love Supreme, 1957, he said he had a spiritual awakening. He'd grappled with drugs and, mm. you know, this man, had, his life had been ravaged. He carried the weight of history on his, on his back. He said, I had a spiritual experience. I felt the grace of God. And that's why he gave, gave us a Love Supreme. Mm. You know, a Love Supreme. A love supreme, a love supreme, and the heartbeat, you know, like the bass. What? What? Do you think there's not God breathing in that man? And then, and then Martin Luther King Jr. You know, he listened to Coltrane. He said Coltrane has put now people's prayers to music. I mean, that's real, James. This mm. doesn't happen. Mm. Martin Luther King does mm. not happen. See, isn't this fascinating? Like you and I are meeting. Over this album, this, yeah. this record, I'm a saxophone player. Yeah, you know, so this is an album I've studied. These are this is playing that I've absorbed in lots of ways. I have never got that. Really, I'm so envious of what you're expressing there. I, I don't have <laughs> it at all. I am, I am dead to everything that you just said. Wow. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I have never been touched by God. Wow. I have no sense of it whatsoever. But he was. I hear. I can hear the reaching for the spirit. Yeah. I can hear, and I hear that it's beyond. Just playing of notes, uh, yes. the execution of a tune, yes. you know, the execution of technique. I, I hear it as beyond that, but I do not hear the the. And I'm not saying it's not there. I'm just I'm regretting, um, you know, lamenting that I don't. But I love it. what you just said. 
You settle here the reaching for God. The mistake we make is that we think God is in the touch. God's not in the touch. I was just in Rome and I was reminded again when I, when I was in the Sistine Chapel and I looked up on the, on the roof, Michelangelo's rendering of the story of humanity. And look at the hands of Adam and God. They do not touch. And that little space in between the outreached hands of Adam and God, that's our love and our hope and our despair and our war. And that's everything. I think God is in the reaching and we always think God is in the touch. Yeah. I think God is in the reaching. And I'm not talking here. I never believed in this idea of a God who tells us how to vote or a God who peers into people's bedrooms and tells you who you should love. God is love. Jesus is on the cross and in the suffering of God uh, on the cross, he says, why have you forsaken me? And then says, forgive them. This is the essence of what it is to be human to me, this reaching for each other, the ability to forgive in the face of the horrors that we can do to each other, and knowing that God's not always there. There's this incredible thing that Elie Wiesel writes in Night, and he's 12 years old and he's in Auschwitz, and he sees these five men hanging. The Nazis are hanging five Jewish men. One young man is taking a long time to die. And he hears one of the Nazis say, where's your God now? And Wiesel says he hears a voice inside him saying, there I am. I'm hanging. God's hanging. Mm. God's hanging there, mm. dying with us. Yeah. I know that God died in the frontier wars. Our land is a land given to us by God. We have a word for God, Bayami. Bayami is my spiritual creator. Jesus is my ancestor. It, it was easy for us to understand. He's a tribal man. He's living in a land of occupation. He speaks back to the state mm. with love, mm. you know, and, and that's our people. So it made, it made perfect sense to me, and, and, and I hear it everywhere, and I see it everywhere. And this week, when I'm talking to you after, after the vote on the weekend, I'm reaching for that. I'm reaching for that, that thing that I know is bigger than politics. And whatever the world is to become, I know that there is a love beyond that. I know that for all as I love of quantum physics, I know that quantum physics can tell us what created the universe. I know that we can probably find the, the chemical components of love and write it down, but it can't tell you why you love. We know what's in a sunrise and a sunset, but not what we feel. We've never been able to unlock where consciousness comes from. And consciousness is God, you know. I think we made a mistake too, James, when, when we, we had this Cartesian view of God, this sort of duality, that God's in the heavens and we're here. But then you get Spinoza, who's excommunicated and banished from the Jewish faith as well. And, and he says, God is in nature. God is in us. God or nature, you know? The imminence of God is what I felt, mm. not, the, not the supernatural God. Mm. You know, it's very easy for people like Richard Dawkins and others to, to scoff at the supernatural God. I'm not talking about that. I'm, I'm not talking about a God in the heavens that's going to come down and you know, put money in my bank account. Mm. You know? yeah. God's not my banker. Yeah. <laughs> but 
But there is an imminence of God, and I felt the imminence of God. I felt the touch of Jesus Christ. I felt like when Simone Weil, the great French philosopher and mystic, who's probably one of the great philosophical influences of my life, and she talked about feeling that incarnation, never set foot in a church in her life. She'd never be baptized because mm. she felt that she was unworthy of it, mm. and yet she felt the presence. And that's probably me, you know. Yeah. I don't think I'd picked up that aspect of Stan from watching him on Q&A. Like I suggested, he's a preacher and a teacher, and it is sitting with a man who walks in two worlds and possibly more at once. He can talk of Biami and the Rainbow Serpent. He can quote Derrida and the Gospel and John Coltrane. Stan, this has been a beautiful conversation, and I'm, uh, I'm having a strange experience of feeling both elated and devastated. <laughs> <laughs> What's, where's the devastation? Because the well, state of the world. The state of the world, yeah, the, the, the picture you're describing of this, you know, the, that we're, we're in such a state of uh, violent flux, uh, something struggling to be born, along with your, uh, your beautiful articulation of your, your beliefs, that, that you're, you're so in touch with your, your feeling, your thought, your sense of, of you, your mm. sense of, of yourself. That's, a, that's an amazing thing to be alongside. Well, I, f- I feel it when I go to the river. I feel it in my parents' touch. I hear it in a magpie, which is my family's animal totem. You know, I dive into the river. I hear it in the rustle of the trees. You know, I, I was walking back from the river near mum and dad's not long ago, and I saw this big kangaroo come out in the middle of the, the track and just stood there looking at me. And I kept walking and he stood there and he kept walking and I got right up and close to him and he looked right into me and he's like, I know you, I know you, you're, you're from here. And he just bounced off. I, I, I walk with that every day. The enlightenment made us think we were God for the first time and maybe for good reason. For the first time we actually uttered those, that sentence, does God exist? We asked that question. I don't know as a Wiradjuri person I've got that question in me. Mm. I do ask this though, James, does God care? It's not the books of the Bible that spoke to me and that we preached on with the book of Job, the book of Lamentations, six poems to a devastated, ransacked Jerusalem with mothers who are having to eat their babies because there's nothing left to eat and they're asking, where are you, God? We ask that. And all you can do is get on your knees in those moments and say, I don't know if you care, but I have to believe you do. Mm. And that's enough. That's been enough for me. Stan, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, James. Stan Grant, soon to be Dr. Stan Grant, and I'm sure he'll be back with us. And I think it's a voice that many will say yes to. I hope you've enjoyed the Belief series. It's been fascinating for me and opened me up to so many different ways of thinking and seeing the world. Hopefully we'll get to do it some more. Big thanks to Grant Walter for making it sound so great. To Blythe Moore, who along with Grant came to me a few months ago and said, hey, we like your work, make something. And so this is what we did. Chloe McKenzie has done additional production and my boy Roy did some original music for it. I believe in love, joy and wonder. And I believe in talking and broadcasting. So hopefully this series had a bit of all that. Talk to you somewhere soon. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.